6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his session entitled, The Passion Week. We remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. You know, it's interesting, the disciples didn't get it. Jesus told them several times on the third day I'm going to rise from it. They, it didn't register. The only people that understood it were his enemies. They knew they were expecting him to rise the third day. And also some women. They understood. The disciples didn't get it until later. Anyway, they, they say after three days, he, they're, they're, that was the boast that they're afraid of. He said, command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. I think that's an interesting mark. They're admitting that it was a mistake, what they did so far. See, they didn't plan to do it on the holiday, but it all went, from their point of view, pretty sour. And I love Pilate's response. Notice what he says. Pilate said to him, you have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. I love that phrasing. Do you hear? Do you hear in his words a certain cynicism? I don't think Pilate was surprised when, he just, when his own soldiers come and say, "By the way, he's gone." I mean, Pilate, I suspect, was not surprised with the resurrection. You have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. You know, I dare you, so to speak. Almost, you hear it in there—a taunt, if you will. You have your way. Make it as sure as you can. Well, okay, so we get to this incredible day. He is risen. He is risen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The most important validation in the history of the universe. Now, just to review a little bit, you may recall when we were in Genesis, the ark came to rest on the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, the mountain of Zerarit. That's when the new beginning starts under Noah, remember, in in Genesis chapter 8. Why did the Holy Spirit give you that detail? I mentioned then at at that time, when you're normally, if you're a normal, well-adjusted person, the ark rests in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month on the mountains of Ararat, you read on. But if you're into one of my Bible studies, you are no longer qualified as a normal, well-adjusted human being. You remember that I made this ridiculous remark that every detail in the Scripture is there deliberately by design. Why did the Holy Spirit want you to know that the ark came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month? I mean, who, why is that important? Well, you, as you know, the Jews have two calendars. The civil calendar is Tishri in the fall, Rosh Hashanah, the, the new year. It's a, typically in our September time period, roughly. The religious year is in, starts in the spring because of Exodus 12. When God ordains the Passover, He says to Moses, This month, that is the month of Nisan, shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. 
And that means the Jews have two calendars. The Genesis calendar, the old calendar, is the one they celebrate in a civil sense. Rosh Hashanah is in Tishri in the fall, first month. The seventh month is to them Nisan. But since the Exodus, since the Passover is ordained, the religious year starts with Nisan and it rolls around so that Tishri is the seventh month of the religious year. Do you get the picture? Okay. So, here's the situation. He's crucified on the 14th of Nisan. He's in the grave how long? Three days. That means his resurrection occurs on the 17th of Nisan. Nisan being the seventh month of the Genesis calendar. So God's new beginning on the planet Earth for Noah was on the anniversary in advance, in anticipation, of our new beginning in Jesus Christ. I think that's significant. I think it's fascinating. It demonstrates God seems to love to deal in very precise ways. I never use the word approximate and God in the same sentence. Well, there are a lot of appearances of the, after the resurrection. Mary Magdalene sees him first, early Sunday morning. I'll come back to that one. Other women that morning. Two on the Emmaus Road that afternoon. We talked about that briefly. Peter sees him sometime that day. The eleven see him that night, but without Thomas. A week later, actually eight days later, the eleven see him with Thomas, and we have that famous confrontation. Then the seven are up in Galilee in John 21, and there's a breakfast there that I want to talk about before we're through. And then the eleven see him again in Galilee. Then there's 500 that see him in Galilee, and what's interesting to understand is many of those 500 are present in the church at Corinth when Paul is writing his letter to the Corinthians. He makes reference to them in his first Corinthian letter. How many of you would buy the idea, if I tried to sell it to you, that John F. Kennedy was killed in Dealey Plaza in 1963 with a bow and arrow? You laugh, of course, because you know I could not fly that story. Why couldn't I fly that story? Too many eyewitnesses here. Too many of you have first-hand experience to the contrary. And that's exactly the argument that Paul makes in his Corinthian letter. He's talking to people who were up in Galilee that witnessed his post-resurrection appearances. Two Jameses at the cross. The third James was Christ's brother. He, he believes in him after the resurrection. And that's also alluded to there in, in, in 1 Corinthians. And then, of course, Luke had, then there's the final appearance and ascension recorded in uh, Luke 24 and following in the book of Acts and so on. And then there's another appearance that we often overlook, and that's to Paul on the Damascus Road. But, you know, all of us have uh, things in the Bible that bother us. People have difficulties with various things. And I want to share with you a difficulty that I have. It's been bothering me for years. And let me just be candid to you. What really bothers me is I can't help but notice that it seems that after his resurrection, people seem to have difficulty recognizing him. It's never quite overt, and yet it just lurks behind these encounters. The encounter with, with Mary in the garden. She goes there in the garden, she stoops down, looks in there, and he's gone, and she's crying. And she hears a voice, who are you looking for? I'm looking for my Lord, where have they laid him? And she turns, and she thinks the person she's talking to is the gardener. 
Right? Remember that? And she says, tell me where you've laid him and so forth. And he says to her, Mary, in Aramaic. And she says, Rabboni and Master. She apparently doesn't recognize him when she said, like, maybe it's because she's got tears in her eyes. But she was not a, you know, a, a casual acquaintance. This is Mary Magdalene. She loved him. It isn't until she hears that familiar voice that she puts it together and realizes it's Jesus. That bothers me. Something doesn't quite compute there in my mind. That afternoon, two disciples are on their way to Emmaus. That's about seven miles out of Jerusalem. On that road, he encounters these guys. And he says to them, why are you guys so sad? Because they're really down, obviously. They're talking to each other, they're really blue. And he says, why are you so sad? And they turn to him and say, in effect, where have you been, fella? And they recount to him the events of the last few days, how they took the Lord and they crucified him and now his body is missing and they're all shook up. And it's interesting what he says to them. He doesn't say, hey guys, it's me. He doesn't say that. He says, wasn't that what Christ was supposed to, was supposed to happen to him? And then he gives them a seven-mile Bible study. He starts at Moses, goes through the prophets and the Psalms. He goes through the Tanakh. Apparently, I don't think he's carrying scrolls. All these were well-versed enough they could do it from memory. But he recounts to them how all these things were the things that Christ... And he's speaking of them, to them in the third person. Christ, that guy. They're walking with him. right? These are two guys that will be in the upper room that night. They're not strangers. Yet they don't recognize him. They walk seven miles with him, don't recognize him. Until they get to where they're going, and by then they're so entranced, they insist he stay for dinner. He was going to keep going. No, 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 you got to stay. They, they insist he come for dinner. And they're sitting around having dinner, and Jesus breaks the bread. Now that's a violation of normal protocol. The guest doesn't do that. The host in a Jewish home breaks the bread, right? No, Jesus takes it and breaks it. And when he does, they realize who he is. And he disappears. <laughs> and they say to another, didn't our hearts burn with us on the way? But what's puzzling, what was it? They didn't recognize his face, but when he broke the bread, they realized who he was. What do you suppose it was? Right, exactly right. They saw the nail prints. In fact, they go to Jerusalem that night, and when they're mixing with the disciples, they explain what happened, and they recognized him, they say, in the breaking of the bread. Well, does something bother you? Why does it take the breaking of the bread? Why? Didn't they recognize who he was? He's tangible. He'll say to them later, handle me and see, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone. He's tangible, yet for some reason they don't recognize him. In the upper room that night, they're all there behind locked doors, frightened, confused, feeling that they're probably wanted men, they're worried, and he shows up right in the middle of them. He says, be not afraid. They're terrified. Be not afraid. And handle me and see, a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see me have. Well, there's a couple other things, but 
Let's skip ahead to John 21. They're all sort of frightened. Some days have gone by. Um, Peter says, I go fishing. You know, that's good therapy. You know, if you're under stress, one of the things you should do is indulge in something you're good at that's a change of scene. It may, it may be a game of handball or golf or, or just a good workout or whatever, but you do something that is unrelated, that you're good at. As a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a normal, that's a good, healthy hygiene uh, from a stress. So Peter said, you know, he's a fisherman. I go fishing. Yeah, we go too. So there's a group of them that go out on the Sea of Galilee all night long and catch zip, nothing. John 21, it records how in the morning, in the early mists of morning, they've struck out, not a thing. They see someone, on the, and I can understand, they can't tell who it is, there's somebody on the shore says, hey guys, you catch anything? No. Put your net on the other side of the boat. <laughs> like that's going to make a difference, you know. But they do. And the net gets so full of fish, they can hardly handle it. And John connects the dots. That's the Lord. How does he know that? Because that happened once before, earlier in the ministry. Same kind of thing, roughly. Well, John, right, that's the Lord. Peter, <laughs> lovable Peter, he drops his coat and dives in. He can't wait for them to pull it in. They're all struggling to get these fish in. But anyway, he gets, so they pull it in. And when they get there, and this is the part that's interesting, when they finally get there to the shore, Jesus has cooked breakfast for them. How many of you have had a biblical breakfast, had fish this morning? Huh? Fish and bread is what he had. He hit over the fire. He had a breakfast cooking. But there is a state, there's, when I get to heaven, there's a lot of things I probably want to do, but among the first things I want to do, I want to go to John and say, what on earth did you mean by verse 12 of the last chapter of your gospel? Because it puzzles me. Verse 12, Jesus said, come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? What on earth does that sentence mean? That's one of those sentences that creates doubt rather than resolves it. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's assume you're driving to a social engagement an hour away from home, and you're halfway there, and you turn to your wife and say, Did you turn off the stove? If she says, Yes, I did, you keep driving. But what if she says, I'm sure I did. <laughs> what do you do with that? You know, it's one of those kinds of statements. It sort of creates doubt rather than who are None of us dared ask him, who art thou? Because we knew it was him. Do you hear in this some kind of enigma lurking behind the scenes? Well, our whole premise in our ministry is that there are prophecies that are fulfilled, and when they're fulfilled, they're fulfilled precisely. And I'm going to suggest to you that there is a detail of the crucifixion. First of all, I'm glad that Mel Gibson apparently didn't take advantage of in his movie, or it would have been even worse than to many than it was. There is a detail of the crucifixion that's prophesied in Isaiah that I believe was fulfilled, that you don't find recorded in the Gospels. There are descriptions of the crucifixion in Psalm 22, many details, the vinegar and all the rest of it. So Isaiah 53 is an eloquent summary of this. In fact, in Isaiah 
52 verse 14. Isaiah 53 really starts a couple of verses before that chapter. You may recall when we went through it. But the last verse in chapter 52, before 53 starts, says, He was so beaten, he no longer looked human. I mean, that's, that's as, as, as far as Mel Gibson went, that even goes perhaps a little further. But there's also a verse in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, that I'll call to your attention. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Apparently this verse by Isaiah indicates prophetically that they ripped off his beard. Now that's vivid to me for a number of reasons. There was a time when I was in charge of a large company that had a very substantial software department. The head of that department happened to be a guy that had a very large, full black beard. That was just his style. One day, I came to work early and he was coming down the hall, and I would not have recognized him, but fortunately another employee said, hey Joe, and got into conversation, I picked up, that's Joe. I was so used to this big full beard. When it was gone, I wasn't prepared for the, the face that you saw. It was just a different shape than you think, and it was, he just looked so different. I would not have recognized him. And he didn't have scar tissue or any of that sort of stuff. What I'm beginning to suspect is the reason they didn't recognize him, well, the reason that Mary didn't recognize him is she was used to seeing his beard. And there was scar tissue where the beard was. The reason that these two disciples on the Emmaus Road could go seven miles in a Bible study with them and not realize who it was until they saw the nail prints, because they were looking perhaps at disfigurement, scar tissue, whatever, in lieu of the features that they were used to seeing during those years of training. That evening in the upper room, and they're so startled, it took them a while to handle me and see, you know, and so forth. And I suspect that's what's lingering in John's summary when he says, none of us dared ask him, who are you? Because we knew it was him. In other words, the other indications, his voice, his nail prints, overcame some other aspect that was, that was in the way. One other thing I might mention to get this across, perhaps. I'm told of a woman who had a little daughter, single mom, that had a very disfigured face. And she was so disfigured that the, little, the girls in school, when the little girl went to school, the, the kids in school made fun of her because of the disfigurement. You know, how, you know how cruel little kids can be sometimes. She often came home crying. When the girl, little girl became old enough, the mother explained to her that when she was a baby and they lived in an apartment, there was a fire, and she saved the baby's life, but at the cost of sustaining very severe facial disfigurement. Well, from that day on, the little girl was no longer ashamed of her mother. Because every time she looked into her face. She knew how much she was loved. 
Now, one of the things that I don't know the answer to, I don't know what it's going to be like to view the face of Christ. I do understand that he still bears the marks of his humiliation because they're the marks of his glory. But I don't know what it'll be like to look into his face. I don't know what we'll see. I do know we'll know how much we're loved. There's a passage in Zechariah 12.10. I think we touched on when I was in Zechariah, but let's look at it again. There's a passage there. It's often quoted, They shall look upon me whom they've pierced. This is a, an allusion to Jesus' return, His second coming. And they, the, the Israel, will look upon them, upon me whom they've pierced. When you look at that in the Hebrew, there are two letters that are not translated. They shall look upon me, the Aleph and the Tau. Whom they've pierced. That's the, the Jewish equivalent of the Alpha and the Omega. The Aleph and the Tau, the Et, if it's linked with a Makef, it can be the indication of a direct object of a verb. It also has three other uses, about four different uses for that. It also can be an indefinite pronoun in the second person masculine singular, which I believe it is here. It's called a hypocatastasis in the Greek. It's a putting underneath. It's a hidden but declarative implied metaphor expressing a superlative degree of resemblance. And this also occurs in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and so forth. Uh, if I look at the book of Revelation, we have that climactic event occurring in Revelation chapter 5. Where John says, I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood the Lamb as it had been slain. Not a Lamb, as it's in your Bible, it's the Lamb actually, but the point is, who is this? The Lamb of God. It seems to indicate that He will bear the marks of His glorification. I think we may spend an eternity trying to understand what it really cost him that we might be there in fellowship with him. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father in heaven, we come before your throne acknowledging our unworthiness, acknowledging our sin, sins of commission, sins of omission, sins of presumption, sins of ingratitude, more than we can number. And yet, Father, we come before your throne with gratitude for what you've done. We thank you for the extremes that you've gone to that we might live. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. We thank you, Father, for his enduring the shame, the pain, and yes, the isolation from you that she endured on our behalf. We acknowledge, Father, that even an eternity may be inadequate to convey to us the price he paid. We recognize, God, that 
He didn't get a discount. That He paid for each of us and each of our individual sins of each of us that we might live. Father, we just thank You. And we do pray, Father, that through Your Holy Spirit You would make ever more clear these extremes that You've gone to on our behalf. That You would open Your Word to our hearts and lives that we might more fully understand and apprehend our Savior, our Redeemer, and the lengths He went to for us. And we also thank You, Father, for the lengths You went to on our behalf in providing Your Son that we might live. Father, we would ask that through Your Holy Spirit You would help each of us to grow in grace, in knowledge and understanding. Help us, Father, as we live each day to recognize that we have the opportunity, if I can use that word, to add to His suffering on that cross as He stepped outside of time to pay for our eternity. Oh, Father, help us to be more effective stewards of these treasures You've given us. Help us, Father, to grow in grace and the knowledge of Him. And help us, Father, to be more effective stewards of these things. As we commit ourselves without any reservations whatsoever into Your hands, pleading the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.